This is the Low Level Hell Podcast, Episode 12. Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast, the program that explores the world of rotary and fixed wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army helicopter pilot, Brian Harris. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Appreciate you stopping by. My name is Brian. I've got Kelly with me here today. What's going on, man? Hey, not much. Uh, just another day in paradise. Yep, uh, getting a little bit warmer down there in Texas after your uh, snowpocalypse. Yeah, no kidding. You know, uh, Texas was not built for snow, and especially South Texas. So, uh, you know, lo- losing power and water, and a lot of people had busted pipes, and we had we had no water for a couple of days. And uh, I tell you what, you really start thinking about the necessities of life when you don't have power and water. Uh, people really go crazy around here, too. So, uh, yep, very, very glad to get back to normal. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't have... Uh too much damage. I have a friend of mine that still lives there. They, I guess th- their house was fine, but uh, his wife works or maybe owns now a veterinarian clinic and they had a bunch of pipes burst. He sent me some pictures. It was not pretty. Yeah. At one time, my, my town here in New Braunfels was pumping 28 million gallons a day and nobody had water pressure. So that, t- <laughs> that tells you it was just running out in some open pipe somewhere, you know? Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, well, from one tragedy to another, uh, going back to work full time, which I, I know I shouldn't say it that way because oh, it's, it's a great thing. You know, it, it's good that we're, we're getting back to normal, but at the same time, after yeah. not having to go in, uh, for the, really the past year and now having to start going back in every day, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's painful. Yep. I'm not looking forward to it at all. Um, you know, it's, it's been, I think a year and two weeks since mm-hmm. I came home to start teleworking full time. And, um, I've loved it. You know, I'm, I'm, when I'm in the office, I got people lined out the door wanting to talk it's, in meetings. All It's just brutal. Right. Yeah. And by the time you get home, it's just like you're worn out uh, and sometimes in a bad mood. And then, um, you know, a year ago we got sent home basically and uh, it's been a joy. You know, I've got five kids and just to be able to really, and one really small one, one, one year old. And it's been really good to, uh, you know, be home to enjoy that and see her a lot more than I did the other four. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's like, it's very hard to concentrate in calls, uh, you know, and talking to uh, important people when you got, you know, a one year old trying to run around or sit in your lap at the same time. So I'm going to miss that. But, uh, I, you know, for in some regards, I, I need to get back into the swing of probably paying attention you know, a yeah. little bit more than I have been, but, um, yeah, I'm not looking forward to it, but uh, I'm looking forward to it all at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's hard going back to being a, an adult is kind of how I picture it. Spend <laughs> yeah. way too much time not adulting, but, um, yeah. uh, yeah, it's funny cause even my kids, so they started going back to school this, this, uh, this past Monday and they go, they go two, two days a week. So they go Monday, Tuesday, then Wednesday, the school is getting cleaned and then Thursday, Friday, they do virtual, and it's like half and half, right? So half the school oh, yeah. does that, and the other half does the other half. Um, so they're going to class, and there's like you know four kids in their classroom or something, and then a restaurant, yeah. the computer. Um, but you know, you then they popped up here this week and said, "Hey, you know, after spring break, we're going to go back to coming back to school four times a week 
and Wednesdays will be virtual because they're going to, again, clean it. Right. But you have the option of staying virtual for the rest of the year. Yep. And so yep. we asked the kids, like, well, you know, are you sure? You know, do you want to go to school or do you just want to stay virtual? Because in our mind, we're kind of like, well, they got to get up a little bit earlier, which means we got to get up a little bit earlier. You know, they're probably going <laughs> to want to. How much just, work is it for yeah, me? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's five weeks, you know, eh, it'd be okay. And uh, every single one of them was like, no, I want to go back. So, I mean, that's pretty wild to me that four kids, yeah. you know, four out of four. <laughs> it's the social aspect. Yeah. And yeah. That, that's what my kids deal with because they're still teleworking as well. And, yeah. um, you know, they want to go hang out with their friends. And I'm like, no, they got COVID. You, know? right. so, <laughs> you can't do that yet. You know, and I, you know, this is just my personal side. I, I'm, I'm not a, you know, I'm. I'm not a disbeliever in the vaccination, but I certainly am waiting it out. Right. right. Um, I'll probably have to take it sooner or later or be forced to eventually, but um, I'd like to wait as long as I can. So, um, you know, n- none of us have been really vaccinated, but um, so they, yeah, they want to go back to school. And, and at some point you, as a parent, you know, you have to make the decision, you know, okay, this is probably not going away. Yeah. We're probably all going to get it sooner or later. How, you know, what, damage are we doing to the kids by them not having a social life or them just staying at home so it's it's a hard trade-off when you're a parent to think about those kind of things but um yeah you know you just kind of you try to make the best decision and knowledge as you can and then you go from there i I don't i don't think my kids will go back the rest of the year because you know it's pretty pretty close to being over after spring break right a couple months um but next year certainly it'll probably be back in full swing and uh, they're looking forward to it and and so is my wife yeah. And, you know, f- for the vaccine, you know, I-, I can tell you that I got it and the tentacles are barely noticeable. So I really wouldn't worry yep. too much about getting it. Uh, it's going to be fine. <laughs> you haven't turned into a zombie yet, right? Yeah, not quite yet. Uh, <laughs> that third eye that's a little bit disconcerting yeah. for strangers. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, let's uh, say thanks to a few people. You know, we've got our Patreon set up and we've had uh, quite a few new people join. So I want to say thanks to them. Uh, we'll start with our air mission commander tiers. This is the highest tier. Uh, and a new one today. It goes by Prime. We got JG4 Kruger, Dean Larson, and Ken Kessner. So appreciate you guys. Uh, for our wingmen, we have Apache Can't Fly, which is not true. It can fly. I've seen it. I've been <laughs> in it. Uh, Rocket Phil, CM, Steve Davey, Mike Detloff, John Sterling, Loki Jew, Terminus, and Rob Grady. Uh, for our mission pilots, Sirius, and for our crew chiefs, Caden Jambeer. So I appreciate all of you and your support. And, of course, for the rest of you, uh, if you'd like to support, you can check out our Patreon. Just go to our website, www.thelittlehellpodcast.com, and it's got links to our Facebook, our Instagram, Twitter, Patreon, as well as our new photo album where we're showing pictures from our guests. Uh, but of course, just to uh, support the show, it really doesn't cost you a dime. You can just scroll on down to the bottom there and leave a comment and a rating. Uh, statistically speaking, based on the analytics, uh, greater than 90% of you are listening on Apple. So very easily, you can just go ahead and look at your screen right now. Just scroll on down there. It's got uh, five little stars. You're going to hit the uh, fifth one there for me. And then just go ahead and leave a <laughs> leave a comment. And I do want to thank the people who have done this, uh, It you know, it's pretty awesome that uh, people will take the time and do that. And, and there's been some really, really nice comments uh, left. Um, in fact, from someone, I think, I guess that worked for me because they said they worked for me at some point. I don't know who they are, uh, but they uh, they had some nice things to say. So I appreciate it. And uh, checks in the mail. 
Um, yeah, well, with all of that, I guess we'll go ahead and roll into this week's interview. Uh, I had a great time with this one, and I think uh, all of you are really going to enjoy hearing this as well. So we'll see you on the other side. All right, well, today we're joined by Greg Coker. He's a former uh, AH-1 Cobra pilot, AH-64 Apache pilot, and I guess most notably a AH-6 Little Bird pilot. He's also the author of a new book, uh, Death Waits in the Dark, Six Guns Don't Miss, uh, which was just published here, what, past the last December, is that right? Yes, sir. Yes, right. sir. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Greg, and uh, sharing some time with us here. Uh, we were just kind of goofing around. We know a lot of a, a few of the same people. I'm sure there's probably some other names in there we could bounce off yeah. each other. But um, yeah, just for people who uh, don't know anything about you, haven't read your book or anything like that, just tell us a little bit about you and where you're from and kind of how you got started in aviation. Sure. Well, thanks, Brian, for having me on. And it's it's an honor. And I love, you know, talking about what I've done in the past and hopefully it'll help other folks, you know, if they're thinking about moving up in their career or coming in the army and being an aviator or what, you know, whatever you choose. So, uh, so, so where, where'd you grow up and, and when did you join the army? Well, <laughs> I've never grown up, I guess, but my, <laughs> my dad, <laughs> you'll, you'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, what and, is that? Uh, they, they say, uh, what, what do you want to be when you grow up and say, I want to be a pilot yeah. and says, well, you, you can't yes, do both or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're little boys in men's bodies and mm-hmm. trying to find our way through this journey that we take. But now my father was in the military. He was in the air force and <clears throat> I was born in California. He was stationed out there and then moved around a bit and then wound up in central Illinois there for probably about 10 years and I graduated high school and left and came back down to Texas and North Louisiana. I had Kim folk there, my grandmother and uncle, and worked on a ranch and goodness gracious, worked rodeoed and cowboyed and hmm. worked in the oil field. And, you know, at 18, 19, 20, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do at that time. Of course, you know, my father had talked to me about the military for quite some time, and it was something that interested me. And as I grew up in the 60s and 70s as a kid, of course, you know, two of the three channels that we had back then were usually the Vietnam War or news footage. And being the first helicopter war, I just, as a young young man, I got, I guess, infatuated with the those helicopters and watching them fly and land, take off. And, but being around, you know, a parent in the air force, of course, we're always around airfields and you know, watching jets take off and land. And so, yeah, I was always drawn to flight, I guess you could say. And, uh, yeah. And I just, I knew I wanted to fly and that's what I kept working towards or striving to and the vehicle at the time when I started to get serious about joining the army was at the warrant officer program. And I didn't have a degree at the time. So, you know, that was really my only choice. And so I, I enlisted in the army first. My dad recommended that I do that. And, uh, yeah, I went to Fort Campbell, 327th infantry. First Brigade, 
and three years there. And as I was, you know, so it, it was, and still is it's a process to fill out all your paperwork <laughs> to get, you know, to get it pushed up and to the selection board. And I can remember telling my commander one day, I said, you know, I think sir, that they do this process by design. Cause a lot of guys just give up because <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a lot of hard work. It is. And plus you've got a job in the army and trying to manage all that stuff. So. No, I, I agree. I've said similar things before too. Like they're just trying to weed out the weak, you know, <laughs> yes, see if you actually yeah. want it. Yeah. We'll see how bad this guy wants it. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's part of the process and it, it is it's process and everything that, you know, we do in the military. So. Yeah. <clears throat> so you did three years in the infantry and then, you yes. got into flight school? Yes. Yeah, I got accepted. And I was older. I was 25 when I came into the Army. Hmm. Just took me a little longer to figure out what I wanted to do. And so I was a little older. And, of course, it, then it was – you had to be in flight school by the age 29 and a half. Hmm. And, you know, I was right there at the door, but I, I didn't make it. And went to Fort Rucker and – March of 89 and graduated in March of 90. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Did basic and I tracked guns. I, everybody told me I was crazy, but I really liked shooting things and blowing things up. So sure. that's the Cobra track. Apaches were just coming on. And yeah, so I tracked Cobras and my first tour I left and went to Korea in the 517 air cavalry and what a great great place for a, a w1 to start flying we had all the you know different trains you had mountains you had snow you had over water you yeah. had urban and it was at the time it was a real world mission so we yeah. were we were the furthest unit deployed north for aviation it was a, a armor was part of it there at gary owen and we were at camp mobile and the cobras and the scouts yeah okay yes yeah, I was uh, I was there as an armor guy. Uh, I was there at Camp no Casey's. Kidding. That was right across the street from yeah. Camp Mobile. Uh, yeah. yeah, in fact, I think when I went through, they, they didn't have any aircraft there. That was uh, like the transition point where, where guys were coming into the uh, second uh, ID. And gotcha. then uh, all the aviation was up north. What was that? I can't even remember the name of it, but it was, it was even further north than there. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. But that was when they had 58s. Uh, this was 2001 was when I got there. Gotcha. But, um, okay. So when you did the Korea tour, well, let me back up. So flight school, you said when you tracked guns back then you, you had to go Culver's. They didn't have Apache training going on there. It was all like unit no. level or how'd that work? No, they were, it was in a, tr- the army was in a transition period from going Cobras to Apache. And I think, yeah, the only units, I think the 101st, the 82nd, and I believe a unit at Fort Hood, maybe first cab. I don't, yeah, probably. I don't recall, but yeah. And they'd, you know, they'd taken those folks and they'd gone as a complete cohesive unit, done their training and hood and, you know, the other places and then turned in Cobras and got mm-hmm. Apaches. And, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Cool. Yes, sir. And so then you went to Korea, just a one year tour doing the, the Cobra thing there. Correct. Okay. 
All right. How, so, I mean, you're right. Korea is a pretty complicated environment. I've, I've never flown there, but, you know, spent some time on the ground there and I can just imagine sure. and I've talked to other people there. But I mean, yeah, it sounds pretty, pretty amazing. Plus, two, you're having to deal with the, I guess, the airspace. Of course, I don't know how it was back then, but, you know, now you're dealing with another country's airspace as well. I'm sure that yes. was adventurous. Yeah, it was. You had to stay on your toes. And I mean, for me, I just I wanted to be the best Cobra pilot in the Army. And, you know, I just stuck my nose in the books and got good at my trade. And I I found out real early that if you wanted to fly more, you become friends with the maintenance test pilot. Because <laughs> they're, That's you right. know, it, and it's cool taking a Cobra up to 10,000 feet over, you know, and you can look out and see North Korea mm. and uh, do it to do a teak check and then come on down. But you learn to fly the aircraft and. But yeah, I was always begging rides with those guys and they were always looking for somebody to put in a front seat. So Yeah, I think that's the trick that all young pilots eventually learn is is get buddies with the MTP because they're always going to need yeah. somebody to sandbag for them. So that's true. Yes. The Lord knows W1 Harris coming out of flight school spent a lot of time sandbagging mm-hmm. and holding a checklist. So Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I just do. I did the same thing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and it, we, you know, we shot a lot. We went to the range and we trained and we had a real world mission. Of course we flew, you know, flew the border Mm. and flew a lot of night vision goggles. So that paid off, you know, helping me at, at a later time or when I assessed and, uh, yeah, I was, my IP came in and I never will forget this. He goes, Hey, he says, I put me in the commander, put you up for your PC ride. I said, excuse me, I just got here. Yeah. And he says, well, you're at 23.5 hours. Wow. And you have to have 25 hours to be a pilot in command. And I, his name's Kevin Detlison, W2 at the time. He retired as a W5, but uh, I I argued with it. He goes, oh, he says, you're, yeah, we've put you up. It's going to happen. So getting the books will. Wow. I guess it goes across the desk of the, I believe, 8th Army in Seoul. And I never will forget this guy. They called him the Hammer. His name was Mr. Manajesic, hmm. W-4. He was the SP for 8th Army. but So he, he saw this 23.5-hour W-1 and... <laughs> You know, it's like, uh, I'm going to have to go fly with this young man. Yeah. So, yeah, I did. It was a three-day check ride. But, man, oh, man, I just <laughs> I learned so much in, you know, flying with him. And, and I yeah. passed my check ride. So so he came down there to, to nurture you, though, right? He didn't, he didn't come down yes. there solely to bust your balls. No, no, no. But, I mean, he – that guy put me through the ringer and – and we flew front seat, back seat, MVG, and uh, but it was cool. The last day, I can't. I think he said he had done three tours in Vietnam flying Cobras. But mm. man, that guy, he was, he had so much knowledge, and I, and I felt, you know, that man, this is cool because I get to fly with the old guys, right. you know. And but that last day, that last afternoon, we he says, okay, he says. Rides over. I had the controls. <laughs> I said, Roger that. And whoo, man, he taught me how to fly that machine. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, that's incredible. I mean, I, 
I'm chuckling thinking about that 25 hours in in your primary airframe to to be looked at for pilot command. I mean, yeah, I was scared to death. Yeah, I mean, I was hundreds of hours, and it was the average, you know, when I got first looked at for PC. But yeah. I guess in Korea too, considering that it's really only a one year tour, generally speaking, they, yeah, they kind of have to. It's a fast track. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good for you then. I mean, that's that's great experience. Yes, yeah. It, it, and I was older, you know, I was sure. thirty. I was thirty years old, so it wasn't like I was a yeah. you know, young twenties W one. So plus I'd had some time in the army and mm-hmm. had, had a little bit of, had a little bit of responsibility, I guess yeah. you could say. Yeah. yeah. You gave the illusion of maturity and sometimes that's all that matters. Yes, so. yes sir. Yes, right. sir. Cool. So you finished up there and then you, then you went to Campbell and transitioned to Apaches with the 101st. Yes, sir. Yeah. First 101st, oh, ugly Eddie. <laughs> So, so how was that transition to go from something like the Cobra to the Apache? Because there's a lot of different kind of widgets going on in there. Yeah, it, it was man. There's a lot more switchology, and my stick buddy down there was a fellow named Bruce Irwin, and oh my gosh, and he had just come back from Korea too. We had met. He was in Half Attack, I believe, but we had met. You know, knew each other. It's a small community, small, small world. Mm. And yeah, we just, our poor IP, we just wore him out every day. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, the switchology was, it, it was just a whole different, you know, you had two engines now mm. and front seat was a busy, busy, busy seat. And I don't remember, but there were close to a hundred switch positions just to send a hellfire and, and then flying the bag, boy, that was funny the first time. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's it, something universal that all Apache guys can relate to is the bag. Yes, yeah, sitting there on the bleachers watching your buddies go the wrong track. <laughs> 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 of course, you know the IPs are just laughing at us. And, oh yeah, you, know, you get it. You get it after a while, but yeah, yeah it was different. <clears throat> I think it's. I think it appears scarier than it really is. You know, you do it the first time. It's just, it's just weird feeling, right? Your body just, yes. you know, has a hard time adjusting, but it, you know, the second or third time it, it's not so bad. But when I tell no. people who, particularly people who aren't even pilots and I tell them about the bag, they're just, their jaw drops. They're like, what? Like you do yeah. how? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Cause it does sound insane. Like, no, yeah, you get in the thing and, and the, you know, it's covered up and they're like, well, what do you mean? You taxi out like that? Like, oh yeah, the, yep. whole, the whole flight. <laughs> the whole flight. Uh, but um, yeah, and then just like you said, the switchology, I've never flown an alpha model, but I, I've talked to guys who, who you know, they would tell me about the, was it the ORT, the, we had the, the, uh, the TDAC, but you guys had to like put your face up to something in there. Oh, yes. Yeah. Do all these blind drills and know all the buttons and switches and everything. Yeah. Yeah. You had to get. It was similar to the Cobra. Okay. Yeah, heads down. Hmm. I think it was a TSU and the Cobra. and uh, I can't recall what it was. Yeah, it's been a while, right? (laughs) Yeah, the new guys, we'd take Kiwi shoe polish, and Hmm. especially lieutenants, and we'd put it around the the eyepiece. They're like, all right, go heads down, you know, track that car right there. They'd come back, and everybody's standing there. Just got the black circle around his face. Oh, uh, that's pretty good. Things we used to do. Oh yeah, and those things like that continue on, just just different versions <laughs> for sure. 
Sure. Uh, so, so how long did, were you in the 101st uh, flying Apaches? Uh, just three years <clears throat> before I assessed. Yes, sir. Okay. Yep, three years. And they, I knew about, well, I didn't know a whole lot when I was enlisted other than, you know, we I'd see the little black helicopters flying around. Mm-hmm. And a tune started to tell us, quit looking at them. <laughs> they, don't, they don't exist. Yeah. They're like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> So to to kind of frame this timeline, then you you got the Campbell what around ninety one ninety two ninety one ninety one okay and so March first of yeah March ninety one okay so about three years there so yeah you're you're in the hundred first which I I've spent very little time at Campbell probably a week of my life but uh, as I recall the you know, you guys were kind of separated. The 101st and the the 160th guys shared the same airfield, right? But they were just across right. the street kind of way. Right. So you're growing up, you're seeing these guys over there, you're seeing the little helicopters doing stuff. And of course, you know, the Black Hawk Down situation occurred. Yes. Um, so, I mean, how much of that influenced your decision to go 160s? Or was this something that you knew from the beginning that you wanted to do? I knew from the beginning that's what I wanted to do. Yes. Okay. And I had a couple of buddies from first bat that, that had gone to B company, uh, Jamie Weeks, Greg Gilman. And, um, you know, I'd still talk to them every now and then they, you know, they had, of course they're in green platoon. Then I was right behind them. Mm-hmm. I started in like middle of 93. Yes. Green platoon. Mm. Yeah. And green platoon is for those listening. That's, that's the training platoon where you show up and you're learning the, the basics of, of basically how to be a night stalker, not just the flying, but all right. the other stuff that comes with it. Yes, absolutely. It's the first three weeks is all groundwork. It's firearms training, pistol, rifle, and you do uh, CQB. So hand to hand, close quarters, hmm. combat, do some land nav, and then the warrants and the the commissioned officers, you go off to your track and the enlisted guys go even longer. So depending on, you know, they, they even have more. And then, yeah, ours, the, the gun side of it lasts about six months, I believe six, seven months. Hmm. Yeah. Because we have the lift guys is a little bit shorter and then we've got gunnery. So that adds another probably a month to it. Yeah, and, and you see that replicated just in the conventional army, right? With flight school, where the lift guys, you know, their Black Hawk or Chinook course might be two months or however long it is, but the Apache right. and a fifty-eight course before it were, you know, gosh, four months or so. Yes, um, just because you got to add in all those other systems and, and shooting and everything. So you bet. Okay. So yeah. for those listening who who may not kind of understand, I mean, what is the one sixtieth, and you know, just talk a little bit briefly about what that organization is and and who it supports. You bet. It, 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, airborne, and we're known as the Night Stalkers. And they started in 1981 after the failed Desert One mission in 1980. And Charlie Beckwith, when they came back, and it's, it's a lot of interesting history, and Charlie Colonel Beckwith was a commander of Delta. <clears throat> he says, I want army aviators flying my guys. <laughs> so. Right. Because right, the Desert One, it was what? Marines and Air it Force. Was it was everybody. Navy, Marine, yeah. 
yeah, Air Force. It was it was a mishmash of folks. Army, of course, but yeah. So it, it was lessons learned, you know. And the big one was don't hover around in the FARP in brownout conditions. So the unit was formed, and the guys were taken from the 101st, and they, you know, still at the time. 1981, there were, you know, there were several Vietnam vets still flying. And, of course, they took the Cobra guys, put them in the AH-6, and the Black Hawk was just coming on. So they took, you know, Black Hawk guys and Huey guys and put them in the in the Hawks. Mm-hmm. So that was the original foundation of TF-160. And then they actually did a train-up to go back to – Iran, and then President Reagan was elected, and the hostages were freed hmm. not long after. And then the unit continued to grow and train, and they just, you know, and looking back that, and they still do today, but they, they're they somewhat of a test and evaluation for all of aviation and DOD, not only the Army, but the Marines, you know, the Navy, the Air Force. And I mean, they're, you know, they're on the cutting edge of technology and, you know, they figure out, they figure these things out. Unfortunately, a lot of night stalkers were killed in training, trying to establish these, these techniques and flight parameters and, you know, wearing cut out PVS five night vision goggles and, you know, focusing one tube in the cockpit, focus the other tube outside the cockpit. And, you know, they're just doggone. They just learn by trial and error, you know, bless their heart. So I just, every time I talk to one of the old guys, you know, I thank him and hug him and say, hey, thanks for, you know, thanks for making my generation. I was somewhat of the second generation in the nineties there. And, uh, but doggone, man, they were, yeah, they, they, they cut the cloth and, and made the trail for us to be better than they were. And I hope that, you know, the next generation that came on after me and my generation, we made it better for them. I mean, we, we were continuously learning new things, even after 9-11 and Afghanistan, Iraq, and all the other places. Garden spots that we find. I was going to say, you know, it's an interesting point that you bring up that uh, it is sort of a test bed of things. In fact, I was at work today. I was talking to a, a special forces guy that works in my office. And I don't know, for some reason, we started talking about hearing protection. And I said, well, you know, when I deployed, I, you know, we, we know some of the same people. And I, I had a squadron commander who was a 160th guy and, and he knew sure. about equipment that you guys had access to. And it's like, oh, it'd be cool yeah. if we had it, too. And so we had different body armor. We had uh, different uh, work uh hear through stuff for our helmets. Yeah. You know, it was all these things that of course, you know, had been developed through, through the one sixtieth, and, and yes, yeah, it just kind of permeates its way out to the regular army eventually. Yeah. You bet. You bet. And it's, you know, uniforms and gear and kit and like you mm-hmm. said, body armor and survival gear, ALSI. So aviation life support equipment, uh, just, yeah, just all kind of, I, I can't remember how many generations of, plates that you know we went through you know, do we want them to float do we want them not to float do we want them thick do we want them thin do we yeah want, you know so you just have to put the stuff on and and go test it and go fly it and uh i remember when we got new seats 
And we always have we always have to wear our kit, our vest that's has soft armor and then plates front and back. Mm-hmm. And when we shoot, it's SOP. And it's just a safety thing. But one of the guys, he they got in the aircraft in in these new seats. They took the old green, you know, um, oh, what were those things? Oh, like called? the webbing seats or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The, the old webbing seats. Yeah. And I love those things. They were comfortable, and you, know, you got air kind of blown up through yeah. different parts of your body. <laughs> cool you off, but they had these foam seats. Well, they they get in, they crank up. And he picks up to a hover and he's sitting further forward because of this new seat mm. forward. And he almost, you know, couldn't control the aircraft, but he's because he ran out of cyclic. It was all the way against his, his armor yeah. and his kit. And uh, so he got set down and they got out, shut down. We're like, okay, let's pull the backs out because they were just Velcroed in. Yeah. So we had to pull the back seat out, <laughs> the back of the seat out. And yeah, it was, it was crazy. But, you know, that's how you learn things. That's For funny sure. that you reminded me. I did the exact same thing flying 58s. I could, I'm pretty tall. I'm six foot four. So, oh my goodness. Um, yes. Yeah, I could barely fit into things. Squeeze. Yeah, exactly. My knees yeah. were up on the dash. Yeah. But, um, but I did the same thing. I'd have to, I, I never, I don't think I ever flew with a back plate on. Uh, and I certainly took the back out because, yeah, you, you just would run out of cyclic and there was no yes. going back at that point. So, no, no, it's like, oh, well, what do I do now? Oh, push collected down. Yeah, exactly. I hope you got some room to run it on. Yes. Oh, yes, sir. yes, sir. Um, so what was that like? Uh, you know, I mean, you're going from a, a, an Apache, which, you know, is a pretty big bird. to now mm-hmm. you're going to something literally called the little bird. I mean, what was that transition like? Man, it was, I, I was excited to say the least. And sure. that, that thing, that little helicopter is like, when I tell people, I said, it's like a Ferrari, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you can, that thing will turn on a dime, give you nine cents change, get back faster in a hot check. That's just no calf roping saying we used to say about horses. But I, I, you know, I've ridden all my life. But yeah, it, it it's a great machine. And when Mister Hughes engineered, developed, and built that helicopter, he wanted it to be as survivable as possible. And if I don't know if you've ever read any of the history of it or Mr. Hughes, but it's, it's really interesting. And, you know, and they, I mean, in Vietnam, you know, the first, the C models, the little loaches, OH6, I mean, doggone, it's, it saved so many guys' lives. And I've met, you know, several guys over the years that they're like, yeah, man, I love that helicopter. (laughs) We'd get shot down, they'd roll in over in like an egg and we'd get out and Cobra would come in, pick us up or whatever, and yeah. we'd go get another one. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's uh, it's an impressive little machine when when you see it fully loaded up with stuff. You know, it's just got yes. guns and rockets hanging off of it. I mean, of course, everyone who sees it falls in love with that. But tell us a little bit about the the armament and how it how it all plays out. Yeah, the standard configuration was dual mini guns, so we have a we have a plank that runs through the back of the cargo area. Mm-hmm. Okay. And on that plank, so we mount miniguns on the inboard and then two seven-shot rocket pods on the outboards. And those are hinged so we can we can fold the rocket pod up and then, you know, we can load them on airplanes or whatever the right. case or just to push them in the hangar and take up less room. 
So we carried the Dillon M134 miniguns. Our guns shot 4,000 rounds per minute, whereas the door guns and ground guns were at 3,000 rounds per minute. Okay. So that's, you know, two guns, that's 133.3 bullets per second. So it's a lot of firepower in a very, very short time. Yeah. And, um, yeah, our, that was our standard configuration. Then the GAO came online. It's a three-barreled, fifty-caliber Gatling gun that fires a thousand rounds per minute. Did you guys ever carry the GAO or just the fifty? The we M3? we we got the GAO to test it out on the fifty-eight. I know a couple guys who here at Bragg. Um, we did get them uh, just to test out, but I, they ended up going with the M3P, which was a yep. fifty cal they pulled off of the old Avenger trucks. I think. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, yeah. That thing had a high rate of fire too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it was for the, for the M3P, I think it was around 1300. Yes. Whereas the old M2 was around 600. Maybe? Six, yeah. Six, six fifty. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on how you set it. Yeah. But we, yeah, we never could. And we still had the old, the old M250s, hmm. but we could never get those things to work. Yeah. <laughs> they were, yeah, and thank God for Mike Dillon. He he's the one that took the minigun. He is cool story, but make it short. He had bought a couple of miniguns. Of course, you know when you own a reloading company, you got to have a minigun <laughs> so you can beat it. Yeah, and but yeah, Mike Mike was just quite a character, and got to be very very good friends with him and the family. And I actually worked for him for a while and. Yeah, he he re-engineered the feeder, and that was that was the weak link in the original GE gun. Hmm. And he bought it, and it was interesting that it was like early '90s, and uh, he said they took it to the range. Some guy from a magazine called him and says, "Hey, I'm going to bring a Corvette out, and I want you to shoot it with this minigun." <laughs> you know, of course, Mike was like, "Okay," <laughs> and. Uh, the gun wouldn't run, so they, they ran it back that night, and they worked on it all night long. And he was he was an amazing engineer and just a great great fellow. And, and uh, but yeah, so he he kind of paralleled the one sixtieth and was working. They finally about early nineties, they finally got together, and I never will forget. We they're like, hey, we got to go to the range, and we're going to do some testing on minigun. This guy's coming in, and so I we land and we're up doing our safety brief and range brief and walk back down to the aircraft. And there's these two legs with pointed toe cowboy boots and jeans sticking out from under my helicopter. <laughs> and, and I, I just walk up and I just tap his, you know, bottom of his boot and I go, Hey, what are you doing down there? <laughs> and, and it was Mike. And he just, you know, he's always grinning. He looks and he's got that gun tore apart and he's putting a feeder on it. Hmm. And he's like, howdy. He always said, howdy. <laughs> I said, hey, sir, I'm Greg. He says, well, I'm Mike. He says, hold on a minute. Let me finish putting this feeder on. I said, yes, sir. I knew who he was, you know, and, of course, Marty and some of the other guys were there putting feeders on guns. Yeah, and the doggone things worked, man. They they worked good, and they're still working today. So. Hmm. But the uh, the rocket pods, I assume you had just the, the same – had the two zones. Did you guys have different zones where you could put in different types of rockets? Or Yes, sir. Okay. Yep. We could zone them just like, you know, normal 19 shot or seven shot on a, another aircraft. But yeah, we can carry 
10 pound HEs, 17 pound HEs, uh, flechettes, alums. Um, yeah, we can carry the whole. We just, we weapon air it for whatever the target is. Sure. So if the target, you know, hey, we think there might be light armor. Okay, let's hang a gal. So we could go with trips, which was a gal 19, the 50 Gatling gun on the left side, and then a minigun rocket pod on the right side. Okay. So we could, you know, cover a very large target array with that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was, yeah, I mean, it's not just getting in there flying and going shooting stuff, but you got to, you know, you, you're a gun guy and you, you weapon near that target for what you need. Yeah, well, that's what's interesting about the Little Bird because it does have all this, you know, these great weapons and, and stuff. But, you know, in your book and, and you know, I can relate to this as a 58 guy, you, you're still putting the, the little marker on the dash you know, with, with a <laughs> yeah. marker and, and just so. sighting it in with your eyeballs. <laughs> Yes, sir. Yeah, and that's it. It takes probably eighteen to twenty-four months to. So when you're done with Green Platoon, you go to B Company as a BMT basic mission trained, and then you start gunnery, and you do gunnery and more gunnery and more gunnery, and you shoot a lot. I mean, we shoot three or four days a week, and probably eight to ten loads, so four day four night or five day or four day and six night you know however however they had it but you land there with a stack of rockets and and ammo you know the first i saw i was like holy cow man i've been in cobras and apaches and been to rain i've never seen rockets stacked high as me sitting on on a pad you know (laughs) i was like man this is gonna be good but yeah and it takes you that long just because the helicopter is hard to fly there's no hydraulics in it it's a true seat of the pants type of airframe and you know like i said earlier it's a little sports car and you can yank it and bank it and i mean when two ahs are in the terminal areas engaging targets it just looks like a fur ball you know because right. guy shoots breaks dash two shoots and breaks lead comes back around shooting and breaking and yeah, listening to the ground force if necessary for immediate reattack or target shift or whatever the case may be. But you set that grease pencil mark, and it's a, I mean, an army issue black grease pencil. Everybody carries two or three on them, and uh, but it, you know, it's different from shooting with like a pistol or rifle where you have iron sights, you have a front sight, rear sight, and you can line those up. Well, your head is the rear sight so to speak. And then, but it's just learning, you know, where to put that pepper. So the, your first rounds are right on target. Every time we have very, very high standards for shooting and we shoot close to friendlies. And so, yeah, it, it just takes time for a guy to learn it. And, uh, and you'll judge mine was, it was like 18 rivets up and I'm left eye dominant. Mm. So it went, my grease pencil mark went over the inside of the left pedal. Hmm. And I mean, some guys that have all kind of unique ways, some had string, a string, you know, they yeah. do it, measure it up and then over and yeah, or a tape measure and they <laughs> measure it. And, but yeah, once you get it set, it's, it's set, but you have to sit completely, you know, same way in the seat every time you shoot. Yeah. If you move left or if you move right, or if you, 
scrunch down in the seat or if you raise up in the seat, then it's going to put that, it's going to put that, your pipper off and yeah. where your rounds impact. Yeah. And so. you definitely can't use somebody else's pipper because you will. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I mean, you do it enough. And there was one guy, he, he didn't even use a pepper. Yeah. He just, he had his sight picture, you know, and he, doggone, he could shoot to standard and, uh, absolutely. But I just, yeah, I liked my sight out there and you'll put little stadia. I mean, every guy had his own little, his, you know, what worked for him. Yeah. It always had like a vertical stadia at the six o'clock and then an, and one at three and one at nine mm-hmm. just, and I'm a shooter. So, you know, I just imagine that as a scope reticle. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it just, it would help me. So yeah. yeah if the shot was off it, a meter or whatever. I'd be like, Oh, I'll put it there. The winds, or I had a crosswind or mm-hmm. you know, things like that. But yeah, it's, it just takes a long time to teach, teach you to shoot. Yeah. So, that's uh, you know, again, referencing people that we both know uh that was one of the conversations when i was a squadron in uh, the operations office was hey you know brian how, how much can we get some range time well yeah. sir you know probably twice a year oh no we, we got to do more than that i'm used to shooting like two or three times a week and you know stacks of rockets and i was like well sir i can tell you right now that ain't happening yeah <laughs> there's no way um so yeah, I've, I've definitely heard the stories of, of the amount of training and, and yeah, those pippers, you know, it, I, I was never a fan of them probably because I didn't get to shoot enough. Um, sure. cause I was yeah. one of those guys, I was a, just, I, I sort of knew my sight picture, right? The circle of action technique. I just, you, you know, you know, the ground's yeah. not moving. That's where my rockets are going. And, and I feel like I was pretty decent, probably, probably not the all standards, but, um, yeah. but yeah, practice makes perfect. And you guys definitely got a ton of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we have a different technique for shooting, but I think it's, you know, it's trickled out into the big army and I know it has in the Marine Corps, but, you know, using the bump and pushing over at the top, it just, you get in that steady state and it's a good stable platform or, you know, when you're closing in on a target to shoot rockets. I mean, that's, you know, you got to be able to put that rocket in there first shot without any minigun or, anything else yeah yeah i think that that's probably the fundamental difference is that with with you guys it is that there's a guarantee you know that that first round is going to hit where you want whereas with with us in the 58 world it was well the first round is going to be fairly close and then then we'll work it in from there yeah um you know and that's just kind of the nature of of uh of the business and the difference but yeah the bump i mean as a 58 guy that's i mean that's all we did for the most part was was bump it um, not so much in the 64 when I went over there, uh, it's just not the same type of platform. You, you could do it, but it just didn't feel as, as well. Um, yeah, you and you didn't need to honestly with, with a lot of the, the systems, particularly the gun. Yeah. And you, you know, you may, you may see that ground force one time and, or get yeah. called into the car for fire and, you know, they don't know you and you don't know them. And yeah, that, that's one of the great things with the 160th and who we support army special operations and you know you know those guys and i mean when i hear a guy's voice on the radio i know exactly hey that's mo or that's jack or that's right. whoever you know and mm-hmm. leon or and because you work together for years and years and years and train together and yeah and it's it just makes a really good tight cohesive combat team 
Yeah. And they trust us and we trust them. So <laughs> when they, when they do a call for fire and say, Hey, they're 15 meters. They're like, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> See cover. Yeah. <laughs> Typically, we don't find ourselves in that type of situation where they're, yeah. where they're, you know, in these extreme close-up situations. But like even in your book, you were talking about times of checking in with a guy and they're whispering because they're so close yeah. to the target. Yes. That, you know, yep, uh, it's wild. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, another thing that uh, the Night Stalkers are particularly known for is is the timing, right? So the thirty seconds plus or minus time on target. Um, yeah. And for the the listener, you know, for the the, the average army you know, the, the, the conventional standard is plus or minus three minutes. And that means, okay, if something's supposed to happen at 2100, you know, you got a three minute window either side. And I think yeah. most units strive for a lot tighter than that, but, oh, yeah. but still that's yeah. a six minute window. But for you guys, I mean, 30 seconds plus or minus, that's a one minute yes. window is the standard. Yes, and we live and die by that standard yeah. because there are people, you know, the ground forces depending on us. And if it's a time driven mission, then, you know, it just, it has to be, and doggone, I've seen guys almost crash helicopters <laughs> to get in the window. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, Lord, here we go. We're late. Got a headwind. Everybody's pulling the guts out to, yeah. Yeah, to make that time, that TOT. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> but it, again, and that's, you know, green platoon, that's all you do. You plan, you brief, you fly and navigate. You plan, you brief, you fly and navigate. It's you know, 18, 19 hour days for several months. But that, that just green platoon gives you a license to learn. So you can meet, you meet the standard, you graduate, you go to the company, and then you start earning your master's and your doctorate level of navigating to the target. And green platoon, you have to, you have to get there plus or minus 30 seconds with a map, a compass and a clock, no electronic navigation whatsoever. And you're held to that standard your your entire time with the unit, and you know we're always testing ourselves, and you know we'll we'll uh, we'll back nav a guy. You know we'll have a blank map, and you have to go out and draw the line on your map while flying, and then put the mm. checkpoints in and put your time down. And but yeah, it's, it's just really good practice, and and it, it's you know it pays off. I mean, I've been in in combat in different places, and you know, nothing worked, no GPS, no. So, Hey, guess what? And you're in the lead aircraft mm. and you got 12 helicopters behind you with, you know, assaulters and, <laughs> and right. Rangers and, and you, you got to get there, man. I mean, you just do. So that's, you know, I try to try to explain to people. It, it's a doctorate level f- of flying and shooting at the unit there, but you have to be able to navigate in, every terrain possible over water mountains desert urban you know you name it man you have to be an expert at that sure do yeah and 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 we're not talking about small flights either i mean you're you know this could be you know full bag of gas essentially to to get somewhere and do do your business and then get out of there and it's a long ass flight just to get there and make sure that you're there within that plus or minus yes sir we've i've flown over three hours and you know, hit the target and then they'll have a jump fart somewhere and mm-hmm. go get gas and get home or get to your next target. So, yeah, I was interested in kind of reading through your book and, and you guys were talking about the different FARP techniques that, that you guys had had tried. Um, 
Oh, Lord, yes. <laughs> some good, some not yeah, so great. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't have to try a few of them. Yeah. Oh, God bless those guys. And they, I mean, they, you know, we think outside the box. Yeah. Like, okay, we got to get gas. How are we going to get this gas? So, yeah. And you, you'd be surprised at what some of the fellows have thought up over the years. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can only imagine. Um, but that kind of highlights something else that you just touched on a second ago is the planning. And that's another thing that I've, uh, I guess, fortunately been able to experience, uh, working with former 160th guys is the, the level and detail of planning yes. that you guys do. I mean, we did a, just a, a normal squadron gunnery, which generally speaking is, Hey, you know, here's the flight schedule, fly out to this place, pick up yeah. some rockets and guns and go shoot. And we go into this brief and there are slides you know, yes, blown sir. up on massive scale all the way around the room. Okay. This is where you're going to taxi out of. This is where you're going to take off. It's like, we know, like this is our airfield, <laughs> but yes. it's everything yep. mapped out to the Nats ass. Yes. Um, and that of, of course is just a holdover from what you guys do, but that's how you hit that standard. That's how you hit 30 that's seconds. Right. Yeah. And it, and it keeps people safe and mm-hmm. everybody knows the plan and yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, we're just, and even the ground force or other people that we work with are like, man, those night stalkers, they're the best planners in the world. They yeah. plan, they plan and plan. We just, you know, eventually you run out of time. You have to execute because we'd still be planning. I mean, <laughs> contingencies and, and everything we do, every product, the route card, the time card, the freak card, the objective area is triple checked. So three people look at that thing yeah. before it as a final product and then in green platoon in your early time in in b company and i know in a company too that's our sister company they fly the mh6 with the planks mm-hmm. and holy cow i know for at least another year i you had to draw out on butcher paper the target the objective area by hand mm-hmm. so and it was just to teach you to you know learn that objective area learn that target and, you know, it just instills it into you. And uh, so, you know, when you graduate, get to use a slide or, you know, get to, get to use a PowerPoint, you're like, whoo, all right, you know, finally. Yeah. But, but, yeah, it's, I mean, there's, you know, there's butcher paper hung, hung all over the walls of the briefing area. You know, there's a time flow and there's objective area and your loads and freak card. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. It was fun. It was fun. So let's talk about uh, life deployed. I mean, that's one thing I liked about your book, certainly, is, um, you know, it wasn't just all, yeah, we flew over here, we shot at these dudes. It was, you know, this was us showing up with nothing. And, you know, we had some wood and we had to build stuff. And, you know, I I think sometimes people maybe think, well, the special operations guys, they get stuff taken care of for them. But, you know, you're you're kind of like us in a lot of ways, you know, sometimes you just get the hand you're dealt and you're like, well, I guess we're gonna have to make some stuff here. And, and, uh, it was kind of interesting to read that. And and of course the, the shenanigans that just happen to go on when you're deployed and and living austere like that. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. We're just, I mean, we're just army dudes and, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of the guys from B company were former infantry guys or Rangers, special forces. So, you know, we get laughing and joking and, it's like, man, I feel like I'm back in the day, you know, digging a fighting position and <laughs> setting up my my poncho liner to get some sleep. And but yeah, it, it's just you do what you have to do to make to make the best out of the situation. And you know, we're all Type A personalities, so 
we just you know all we need is some guidance and we'll get the job done and uh but we're always focused on the mission for sure for sure yeah we you know live in hangar or live in the desert or doggone i've lived everywhere camped out <laughs> you know under the helicopter and yeah but it's all I, part of the job it's all part of the adventure it, certainly I, I think one of the coolest things um and i knew you guys did this but i i didn't have any practical knowledge of it i just knew it just in theory but um in your book you were talking about the, the early stage of afghanistan of, of trying to get the little birds into the fight yeah and, you know such a long flight from wherever you know you guys were based out of and everything and it wasn't a really practical way to do it but you did the whole airland concept of pushing them in the back of the c-130s yes. finding a place land you know drop yep. them out of the back and, and go do business and then come back and i guess fold them back up and, and fly away on the c-130 again yes sir yeah that was yeah that was almost every night you know once we once we got a, a mission set and you know, to where we could set the conditions because, you know, it, it was, it was just fun to watch. And it was, I, I was honored to be a part of that team. And, and as I, I really didn't want to be the fire sport officer yeah. <laughs> on that trip, but, <laughs> you know, the commander of Delta had approached me and my good, good friend, Leon Hansen, he was the FSNCO for B squadron. You know, he had asked me about it. And then of course, my commander and I said, well, I said, okay, but I'm still an AH guy. Don't <laughs> don't forget that. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, it was, you know, once, you know, general daily, he, he worked hard and the staff worked hard. Everybody did to get, get us in the fight. Cause we were, who we were chomping at the bit. They're like, turn us, you know, turn us loose, put us in coach. Right. <laughs> we're, we're ready to go. So yeah, we did. And when we did, it was, Game on, for yeah. sure. Well, that was kind of interesting, too, when, when you were, as the fire support guy, because you were overhead, uh, yes. what, an AC-130. Yes. Uh, and then I think you were also in a P-3 a couple of times, Correct. if I remember correctly. Correct. Um, yeah, I was fascinated when you were talking about how many AC-130s were up at a time. Oh, like, yeah. I guess I'd I mean, never pictured it. I never really thought about it, I guess, but I never pictured, you know, multiple ones in the same area. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was kind of fascinating to hear about as well. Well, the only reason we can do that is because of the, the detailed planning that we do and fire support coordination measures. You know, you're a gun guy and you know, you know how much work's put into that, to that plan and, you know, to keep fire at fire assets yeah. out of each other's airspace, right. and, you know? So, but yeah, it's, it's all about detailed planning and we plan and plan and plan until we have to execute. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it was, it was cool to watch. It absolutely was. Yeah. I mean, that's, I know you would much rather be in the cockpit, you know, doing your thing, but I, I think in retrospect, you probably look at that experience as, as pretty fondly as well. Cause that, that's yes. pretty unique. Yeah. I was honored. I, I just truly was, it was, you know, several historical events and I didn't, I mean, I was so focused on my task and getting aircraft where they needed to be and making sure the route was clear for the Chinooks or, you know, whoever was coming in and yeah, it, it was busy. It was yeah. busy. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> it was busy. Um, so one thing I did want to ask you, uh, and, and hopefully, you know, I don't, I don't open any wounds here, but you know, you did talk in the beginning of your book about your good friend that, 
that uh that uh you know really just kind of i guess suffered from demons i guess you yes. could say um yes. you know yes. and that's that's not a, a unique thing unfortunately um no, no, it's not you know what i guess and i can understand uh you know i i've certainly lost friends that way as well and you know you never 100 percent know what's going on in people's minds but of course no. the things that you, you know you have experienced um the things that I've experienced, you know, just the, the, these parts of our lives that we've gone through, they, they not only take a toll, but they're so, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're so important, right? So yes. we, when you were doing that stuff, you knew every single day of what you were doing had meaning and purpose and value. Absolutely. And, 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 and then you, right. And you had all the camaraderie and you just, you had part of a team and then you leave and you leave that yeah. and suddenly things don't seem to make as much sense anymore. You don't have the no. same, you know, you have the friends, but it's not the same. You're not there. No. No. Um, so for you, I mean, wh what do you think about that? Like, what are your thoughts? What are your comments to other people who are in that situation or maybe having a hard time with it? You bet. And it's, you know, and it, it goes back to the first soldier that ever fought on a battlefield. And I've, mm -hmm. I've done, thousands of hours of research and study and so I can better, Oh, just live and, you know, have a good life and, and to help other friends of mine that are going through those same things. But I think the, f the first thing that hit me was, Holy cow, you know, <laughs> now one of my, cause you literally go from Mach two with your hair on fire to yeah. now, what am I going to do? You know, yeah. I'm I had a plan when I retired, but again, it, it slowly creeps in that, you know, you, Hey, you're like you said, you know, you have a mission, you have a focus and you know what you're going to do and you're with your bros and now you're not. And that's gone literally overnight. Boom. Yeah. It's gone. And, uh, so, you know, you, you want to contribute to society and take care of your family and, you know, work hard and, take care of the things that you need to. And then another phase, you know, starts to creep in and regardless of what you experienced in combat, it's, it's there and it's never going to go away. And a good, good friend of mine one time told me, he said, Greg, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. And so I, I always thought about that. I did. Yeah, and you get frustrated, and of course, the classic for, and I don't like PTS. I call it, what did I call it? I, I named it something new. It's PCS, post-combat stress, hmm. because that's specific to a soldier, to a warrior. And they're all different types of PTS. I mean, it could be a car accident. It could be you know, somebody that was abused as a child or raped or, you know, anything that can, and it's, it's, there are different lengths of time, how the brain and how that person deals with that traumatic experience. Yeah. Whereas you take a gun pilot or a, a combat aviator or an infantryman or a ranger, or, you know, those guys are out there and, you know, in gunfights, well, you know, every day for us for years yeah. and it just, it takes a toll 
on a human and every man has a breaking point. I'm just here to tell you. Yeah. And, uh, for what I did learn, the most crucial element of any of this is that you have to talk to somebody because hmm. we as warriors, we push it down, we push it down. We're driven men and, you know, it's on to the next one. I got to, you know, I got to make a living. I've got to take care of my family. I've got to contribute to society and do the best I can do. And sometimes those things overwhelm you. And the demons will overcome you. And if you let them, they'll win. So how can you stay in that fight is to go talk to somebody. I don't care who it is, pastor, wife, buddy, therapist, someone. Just go talk to them. Because I, me and I know Leon didn't do that as, and, you know, with Leon, nobody had a clue. And most, I mean, all the guys that I know, Nobody had a clue. It yeah. just, yeah. they executed. So right. they, they lose hope. Okay. And they have no loving God. That's I've studied all these friends of mine and other people that have taken their life. And that, that's the two, that's the two things everybody had in common. Hmm. Now they, they might've had God in their heart. At, I know Leon did. And I know several other guys that did it one time, but they lose hope, man. And then they're like, okay, that's it. You know, I just I can't take the pain anymore. I can't get help. I can't. And then you throw in, you throw in alcohol and you throw in prescription drugs and man, it just compounds. And, you know, and I talk about it in the book, I've been there. I've been to those dark places and considered taking my life. And because I was just, but I still had God in my heart. <laughs> that's why I didn't. And, I know he, that he had a purpose for me. So that's why I'm still here today. Yeah, you bring so, up an interesting point. Um, understanding the difference between tra- traumatic stress from, from an incident versus the compounding stress of combat or, you know, some something akin to combat where you are switched on every single day. I mean, it becomes yes. your normal um, yes. I mean, you know, you can read the stories of, of in your book and, and of course, anyone who's been deployed and, and gone on multiple patrols or, or operations, sure. it becomes yeah. your normal. But your normal is still the average person's oh, oh crap day. You know, yeah. <laughs> you, know just, yes. you don't think about it anymore. I mean, I was telling somebody yeah. the other day about how oh, I was telling my son, actually, he's 15, uh, yeah, he just turned 15. And uh, I think we were watching a movie and and uh, something, a mortar attack or something happens. And I said, you know, when I was in Missoula in 06, we would get that happen to us three times a week. Yes. And, uh, and I said, you know, it got to the point where I wouldn't even get out of bed, you know, and he laughed at me and I'm like, I'm serious. Like it was just yeah. so, so commonplace that I didn't care anymore. Yes. Um, and, I and yeah, and I know you guys operated in, in I was similar up areas. Yeah. We, I closed, closed us down. Oh, really? Yeah. I never will forget. I'm going to go off trail no, go here. <laughs> I had the last load. We had closed and we're going back to Balad in a C-17 and we were sitting there and I'm like, come on, you guys, let's go, let's go, let's go, you know? And so I go up front and I go, what, how come we're not leaving? And he goes, well, tire just called and they're, they're shooting mortars. I said, they're shooting mortars. Well, let's take off. <laughs> let's not sit here. They're probably shooting mortars at this big airplane. Right. Yeah. Go, you know? So he, He's like, told, called tired. He says, hey, we're expediting now. <laughs> we took off. 
I was well, like, you knuckleheads, let's not sit here. Let's go. Funny. Yeah, I had a yeah. similar uh, situation. We were in Afghanistan and we were in the FARP. And I mean, we were had no gas left. And um, and as we were sitting in the FARP and they came out to fuel us up, we saw a dust cloud kick off in the distance. Oh, and then the, yeah. the alarm went off. And so it was a rocket attack. And all the FARP kids ran away into the oh, bunker and we're on the radio calling the headquarters like you got to get them out here we can go get these guys you know which of course yeah. it was on a timer anyway but you know yeah. but yeah it just kind of stuck there like damn it yeah. you know <laughs> yes yeah um when were yeah. you in missoul what what you said oh six oh it in and out yeah, yeah from from oh three to oh seven okay yes yeah, i left i was there we got there in july of oh six and then I, I left in, I, I got shot on Christmas day in 06 in Missoula oh, and, and left there. Yeah, Merry but, Christmas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I do remember, um, some little birds there. Cause they would, you know, you guys would occasionally come in and, and, you know, we wouldn't yes. even know you guys were there. Like, Oh, you, you'd take off and you'd see them sitting on the ramp. Like, Oh, I guess they're here. Yeah. You know, and then the next day would be gone or something. But, um, yeah, true. Uh, small world. Um, yep. Very small, very but, small. But to go back to the, the combat stress and the, the cause, cause we both, I think can, can relate to that because, you know, like I said, I was shot, but, but for you, you were shot down. Um, yeah. and, and I don't want to go into that cause I know you've talked about other places and of course you've got the book and you go into great detail, but I think it's interesting to, to, to highlight that difference between the combat stress and then the traumatic stress of, of something that is very acute and, and very singularly, you know, uh, something that is unique to you. Uh, and I would yeah. imagine taking a missile in the engine is, is pretty unique. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, going back to where we began and, you know, and I started thinking a lot and talking to doctors and experts and our physicians, our, you know, flight surgeons and other unit doctors. And, hmm. you know, and if you look at the look at the physiological effects of, you know, and I and I've talked to other guys, ground guys and special operators and, you know, more aviators, but I think it's more persistent with the the pilots, the aviators, because there's a lot going on flying that machine. Not only do you have to fly the machine, but you have to have situational awareness. You know, am I going to take fire or, you know, my engine going to quit is, you know, all these things. But if you look at that up and down cycle, and I know right now there's, there's quite a few studies of that adrenaline and all the, you know, all those physiological effects that go on with a combat soldier. And it, it just, it wears on you, man. It just, it wears you out. <laughs> it wears you down. Well, and, you just, and two, to go with what you mentioned before, we're also sort of wired not to talk about it because yeah. you dare yeah. not say anything that's going to get you oh, grounded. No. <laughs> man, I, that's what kept me from saying anything to anyone at the unit. Cause one, I didn't want to get fired. Yeah. I want to lose my job and I didn't want to get, you know, a big, C crazy C branded on my forehead. <laughs> you know, and the docs chewed me out for days for why didn't you, you know, right? And it was, and I talked about it in the book, you know, the, yeah. the doc, he, he saw it and realized, of course, people around me saw it, but they didn't say anything. And, but yeah, it's just, I was just thankful for him and helped save me. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I was a walking time bomb, man. I was well, a thing. And then I'd go deploy again, you know, <laughs> another hundred days and come back and start all over. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head though. It's, it's, 
you've got to recognize it in yourself and then you've got to take the steps and that the real step is, is reaching out to somebody and, and having a, a real conversation and not just, you know, yes. hey, you know, everything's good. And if it's not say it's not because, um, and, and that's what I tell guys who I know who are, who are starting in the pipeline of, of being a pilot. And I, I tell them like, you know, look, you're, you're not going to want to say anything, uh, regardless, you know, whether it's a divorce, whether it's, you got a right. boo-boo, you know, whatever the case may be, but here being on the, the tail end and you certainly, uh, f- having finished your career, I think we can both kind of attest to yes, but there's a balance that you've got to find where yes. you, know, you don't want to complain about every little boo-boo that you get, but you certainly oh, no. don't want to stay quiet forever because it, it's not going to get any better. No, no, it's not. And it's, and you know, you know, as well as I do, it's taboo at, for aviators. I mean, you're, you're held under a microscope and, and it's just like you said, you know, Oh no, I'm okay. <laughs> you know, Oh, I got a fracture in my collarbone. No, oh, no, I can fly, dog. I'm good. <laughs> you know? yeah. Hey, I've been, you know, I just got fragged by this B-70 rocket. I'm good. I'm good. No, I can go. <laughs> so, no, I, no TBI for me. My ears aren't ringing. What'd you say? Yeah, yeah my helmet wasn't split in half after that, yeah. <laughs> that hard landing. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, but, that was silly. That was silly. And that was just an example of, you know how we're raised and yep. I didn't want anybody to see that helmet because if that thing made its way to any other places, it would have been bad for me. So, and I just, yeah. I just wanted to get back inside and do my job. Yeah. I, I loved my job. I like shooting people. So bad people. <laughs> yeah. As long as they're all bad, it's, it's a, it's actually pretty, uh, yeah. good, good way to, to spend yeah. the war. Um, it, yeah. And, and with that comes, of course, you, you don't want to let your, you know, your guys to left and righty down. And of course, coming from yeah. the organization you're coming from, there's not a lot of dudes. There's not a lot of guys just waiting in the wings to take your spot. Yeah. I mean, if you go down, yeah. it's, it's going to hurt. Yeah. It, it's devastating to us. I think at that time there were maybe 23 or 24 of us in mm. B company. Wow. And not everybody was an FMQ. You have to be, you know, back in early days, you had to be a fully mission qualified gun pilot to go into combat but hmm. i mean we got short so we were putting senior bmqs for guys getting ready for an fmq check ride you oh. know it was just yeah we just had to do it because there's just and that's that's across the regiment yeah. i mean always has been we're always at like 50 percent <laughs> i think yeah. oh goodness yeah if a guy gets hurt or if, if he's killed in action it's yeah it's devastating it's devastating well, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time and, and sharing your experiences with us. Um, oh, and, Brian, and I want to encourage. Yeah. Yeah. Told- well, I want to encourage everyone to take a look at your book, too. It's uh, called Death Waits in the Dark Six Guns Don't Miss. Um, yes. Sir. Yep. And yeah, I mean, I read it in two days. Uh, so it's, it's a good read. It's it's interesting. And, and you get some insight not only into to what you guys did uh, in, in the regiment and, and of course in uh, the six guns, but, you know, just some insight into what goes on in the mind of, of soldiers overseas. And uh, like I yes. said, some of the shenanigans that go on, uh, the, the Cobra yeah. that the guys had to kill before it jumped into your, yeah. your fart sack with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. And it's, and I'm proud to say too, I, I donate a hundred percent of my proceeds and to mm-hmm. date, I just sent another check off today. So I've been able to donate $20,000 to, to nonprofits that support veterans, first responders and their families. 
Wow. So yeah, that's, that's really cool. I'm just, I'm just blessed oh. for sure. And I, you know, there's keep buying books. I keep donating. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's incredible. <clears throat> got a few of the hardback special editions left and you can go to the website, deathweightsinthedark.com. And then of course, Amazon or audible Kindle and then the paperback there. Okay. So. Well, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, definitely uh, check it out. Um, like I said, there's some interesting kind of detail of uh, the early days of Afghanistan, early yes. days of, of Iraq. Uh, of course, your your shoot down story and even a picture, strangely enough, of of you being shot down. Is that? Yes. Isn't that <laughs> like, crazy? Like, who's the guy that was taking pictures at that moment? <laughs> I know. I know. And I was like, why weren't you suppressing? Right. <laughs> He's like, man, I was like, that's gravy. <laughs> Whoop! Threw his camera up and then got on his guns and went to suppressing the target. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, That's, isn't that crazy though? It is absolutely. I mean, I had to look at it multiple times. Like, is this? I can't. This can't actually be a picture of him being shot down. But yeah, it, it is it, there. You know, we all carry those little plastic Kodaks. You know, with the crank yeah. film, and we weren't supposed to, but we did anyway. Yeah. But that is kind of a. I don't know the heat or, but that first little streak is actually the missile streak. And then you see me, the little black dots on fire, and, you know, yeah, it's a pretty cool picture. Yeah. It's definitely, definitely a good picture to have. Uh, the older yes. you get, you can, <laughs> look yeah, back you can, on. I can look back at it and laugh about it now. It's like, yeah, I guess so. But certainly at the time. That day, boys, <laughs> time to go to Vegas or Disneyland or something. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Greg. I've appreciated the the time that you've shared with me and with all the yeah. listeners. And uh, and I hope everyone uh, definitely checks out your book and and you can continue yeah. to give to some great uh, great charities. Yes, sir. Yeah, thank you, Brian, very much. I really enjoyed it. It's a pleasure, an honor. Well, I know we both uh, know some people that we've served with along the way that have you know lost their battles with their demons, and uh, it's just a really tough nut to crack trying to figure out you know why and and how you can prevent it, what you can do about it. Yeah, and I think you know a lot of you know both of us have had deployments uh, into a war zone, and you know if you. If you look around in the war zone, when you get there and you're going to the DFAC and you're checking it out, I mean, you're overwhelmed uh, by 18 and 19 year olds, right? They're they're walking around the chow hall and uh, they're all pretty wide eyed and they kind of like, I don't know how I got here kind of thing. You know, it's like, well, you signed up for it for one. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you start kind of start thinking about that. And in me, when I was deployed, I was like, um, you know, 39, 38, whatever. And um I can deal with things, right? Like I, I've, I've come to the conclusion and, you know, I've, I've lived long enough to have some conflict resolution in my life, right? I've seen a lot of things and I can deal with some of that stuff. Now, when you're talking like an 18 and 19 year old who's coming out of high school and, and really hasn't seen or really tasted the world and then what those guys had to go through or what they saw in, in, uh, in the combat zone was was literally core shaking to them and it had them questioning a lot of things. And then they are overwhelmed with guilt um, and they had really nobody to turn to. Right. So one of the issues that we've had at the military is, is we're 
while in the middle of a war, uh, we're concentrating on fighting. We're not concentrating on the people coming home and healing, right? Hey, you go R&R, go home, you know, we'll see you when you get back in theater. Um, and that said, and, and we quickly learned, um, it took a few years, unfortunately, um, that when they go home, that's when they need support, right? That's yeah. when they need people checking up on them. And uh, because people were coming home and, um, you know, just you know, getting hooked on things they shouldn't be hooked on and dealing with a lot of grief and didn't know how to deal with their anger. And these are young kids, right? Um, There wasn't a whole lot of mentors stateside. There was a lot on, I got to say, there was some good support in Iraq, right? Your buddies were there. um, Your, your officers were there trying to take care of you and your senior NCOs were. um, But when you got home, everybody just kind of deserted, right? Everybody kind of went home and you had nobody but your family who had no idea what you were going through. Um, And, and nor could you tell them, right? It's just one of those things you don't want to talk about it because they, they would not understand it. Um, And that leads to massive depression. And some of these young kids uh, just did not know how to deal with that. And on on the flip side of that, you know, a lot of our veterans were injured overseas um, and they would come home. And at the time, the VA was not um, a stellar organization for medical care, apparently. And um, instead of fixing problems, you know, they got them, they give them a pill for something. Um, Now, that's, you know, some of that's been fixed now. um, And, you know, we're concentrating more on that. We're not in a war, per se. Um, so we're able to go back and do some lessons learned with that. Uh, and unfortunately, it's cost a lot of people their lives from being hooked on drugs and, and uh, you know, um, and just looking for a way out. And for some of these young kids, the only way out for them was to take their own life. And that that's very, very sad. Yeah. I, I, and I like the way that, that our guest framed it, you know, talking about the experiences and, and you know, dealing with the 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 stress of, of a moment versus the, just the, the stress over time. And, and you're yeah. right. A lot of these young kids, uh, you know, and it's not just a problem. We're not saying that it's a problem that plagues just the younger ones. Cause obviously the, the older guys have these problems too. I, true, mean, I know, I know, true. A, I know a full bird Colonel who, you know, right as he retired, you know, yep. ended his life. And you're like, what, where did this come from? But uh, at the same time, a lot of those seeds can be, you know, implanted very early on and and you do see it with these kids i remember my last trip into iraq riding on a c-130 up into northern iraq and you know all these young kids it was their first deployment they they all throw on their body armor and they're all you know they wide-eyed and i just get on the plane i'm not even putting my armor on they got a helmet in my hand and i just sit down and start yeah. taking a nap and they're all <laughs> exactly. looking at me like i'm crazy and i'm like yep. bro it's not a thing like if right. something happens we're all gonna die anyway because yep. we're, we're on this plane but um but yeah, I, I, it's it's a huge problem, and and uh, and Greg is absolutely correct in what he says. Is you know, you you've got to not just have someone to talk to, but you you really got to talk. Um, there's too many of these times where it's somebody's you know you're talking to them, but it's not the it's not the level of talk that they need to hear. Right. Um, the support that's not there. It you know just saying hi and checking on somebody. It's a good thing, but it's not enough all the time. And the problem is you just don't know that. You don't know who needs more than that. And so if you are hurting and you are struggling and you you've got to. I know it's hard, but you've got to reach out to somebody and say yep. say that you're hurting. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame in that. There really is. No. And, and there are. There are organizations out there that um, that are full of people that have gone through very, very similar experiences. And those are the people 
you want to talk to. Yeah. I mean, you can go talk to your, um, your clergy, you can go talk to a, um, a Harvard counselor or whatever. Um, they're not going to understand what you saw and what you did, right? You need to talk to somebody who's a veteran, who's been through it and who's there to help. Cause that's, that's a huge difference, um, in, in, in the therapy that, that, uh, that type of, uh, issues need. So, yeah. 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 And I think anything that can, can crack the ice. You know, I, I, I'm not ashamed to say that I saw a therapist, not for any suicidal things, but, you know, I was just getting to a point where I was just overly frustrated and, you know, angry about stuff and, you know, work was driving me nuts. And, you know, the day I finally decided to throw my iPhone through my car windshield uh, was the day <laughs> that I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I should talk to somebody, um, which never try to tell the guy fixing your windshield that you did something different like that it came from outside because because i told him the truth you know he's like well what happened i said well I, I threw my phone at my windshield and he laughed and he says well at least you told me the truth and he says normally people try to tell me and he, you know that something happened on the outside and he's like i can tell yeah. you know absolutely. i can tell by the way yeah, the <laughs> uh, so important safety tip but um but you know i saw a therapist just you know once or twice a week i can't remember he knew nothing about the mil i mean he was in a military town but you know he hadn't served or anything like that but i can tell you just just having someone especially in that situation that's kind of judgment free and you can just say what's on your mind yeah. is super helpful and super therapeutic and if nothing else it can maybe open the door and encourage you to to talk to somebody sure. who like you said who who has been there and done that um but, yeah, but any, any help is better than no help that's right yeah yeah fundamentally that's it's better than than the alternative so yeah agreed um yeah well on a brighter note from that uh we, we do appreciate greg coming on and sharing some of these just fantastic uh adventures and you should definitely check out his book because uh, we really just kind of just the, the tip of the iceberg of things and, and you really get some in-depth look at uh uh his time in afghanistan and iraq and uh, you know i i still can't wrap my head around having a picture of yourself being shot down that, that yeah. just blows me away. <laughs> uh, but but anyway, we appreciate him. Uh, I appreciate you coming on with me this time, Kelly. And uh, we My appreciate pleasure. all of you listeners out there. Uh, just a reminder that the comments of our guests and crew are their own. Do not represent the government or any private business. We appreciate you guys listening. Again, leave a comment or rating if you will, please. And we'll see you guys again in two weeks. Yeah.